So if you have the insert in your bulletin, uh, there are passages there. Not all of them will we get to. That's kind of a Yoda sentence there. Um, I'm going to project a lot of them up onto the screen so you can read them up there as as eyesight allows. Uh, we, we did our best this morning to make it so that they can easily be seen, but um, the purpose of the insert in the bulletin is that you can go back to these passages later uh, and you can look at them in a, uh, whatever, whatever translation you choose. So for the last several weeks, we've been looking at passages and verses that look at how we use our words. Uh, and we all know that words are incredibly powerful things. If you go all the way back to Genesis, uh, that's the means by which God creates everything. Words have this incredible generative power. If you've uh, looked at images from the Hubble uh, telescope, if you've seen the, the glory of a clear day like this, you just know the power of words because that's what God uses to create things. And that generative power of words hasn't waned at all as time goes on. With words, uh, we can be an incredible blessing to people, right? Uh, we can encourage, uh, we can edify, we can correct. Our words can help people to become all that God intends them to be, right? We have this incredible generative power with our words. But we also know that the reverse is true. Uh, we've all heard and we've all used words in manipulative and destructive ways. We've used them to tear people down so that we can prop ourselves up. We've used our words to malign the character of others, to treat people as though they were things. We've all used our words that way. So words have this incredible power for good or for destruction. So that's some of what we've, uh, what we've looked at. And I think in all of this, God calls us to responsible speech. That as we grow into maturity our, in Christ, our words are yet another area of our life where God gets to exercise control. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. That there's no part of my life that's withheld from him. That I give all of it over uh, to him. We started with a simple premise that words are never just words, but they reflect a condition of the heart. So Matthew 12, 34 says that clearly. So every word that I use for good or for ill will show a condition of my heart. So um, we looked last week at how we talk to God in prayer and how we talk about God because I think those words as well will show a condition of the heart. The way that I speak to God in prayer will show what I truly believe about him. The way that I speak about God with other people will show what I actually believe about him. So when we talk to God, we talked about how we should approach him with reverence and humility. We don't come presumptuously as though somehow we know more than God does or we know the course of action that God should take and we're giving him our sage advice born of our limitless experience here on the earth. The opposite of that is true. We come in humility, we come in reverence, recognizing that we don't have his perspective about things. We don't know situations better than God does. So often the best we can do is pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus taught his disciples and us as well. But we also looked at how we should talk about God. So our words about God should reflect our understanding of his character 
as it's revealed in Scripture and ultimately as it's revealed in Jesus. That our words about God are likely to be somebody's best chance at hearing the truth. So we need to exercise responsible speech in those things. So more and more, we want our view of God brought in line with what Scripture reveals. Um, so Scripture is clear that there will come a time when human beings will no longer tolerate the truth, that people won't accept what is true about God anymore, but instead they'll gather around themselves teachers who just tell them what they want to hear. Now, maybe we're at that time, maybe we're not, but the point is that we need to be vigilant uh, to continually have our view of God brought in line with what Scripture reveals. So I'm on this kind of fundamentalist kick, uh, especially as I hear people talking about what clearly is said in Scripture, right? So my follow-up question to that is, where exactly does it say that, if it's so clear? Or when people say, it's all over the place in the Bible. Like, okay, well, if you could just give me 12 examples, um, that, that would be excellent. But we want to have our views of God continually brought in line. I was just having a conversation this morning with Joe Malin because he went after last week, went back and read Isaiah 58, and there's some surprising things about God in that passage that you would assume, if you're a, your average God-fearing, church-going person, that God just really likes religious things, and the answer to everything should be more worship, more Bible study, more religious and spiritual things. What God actually says in Isaiah 58 is, that's not what I want. <laughs> That's not the fast that brings me honor because you do all those things and you still mistreat people. You still oppress your neighbor. You still abuse them economically. You're doing all of these religious things, but you're showing that your heart is really not in it because you mistreat others. So as I'm thinking about who God is, I need to understand that God's not interested in my religious things if my heart is not in the right place. If I am still mistreating people, if I'm still abusing them, God's not really interested in that. So that's just one uh, example. So we need to continually have our view of God brought back in line with what Scripture says. Now, shifting slightly from reflecting on how we talk to God and about God, I want to look at a handful of passages today that speak to how we talk to one another and how we speak about one another, because that's another area where God has a perspective on that, right? So we need to understand that if God speaks to these things, our job is to study them and to obey them, right? So I was reading Nehemiah last week, and there's this really interesting section where they're reading the law and they're reading the section, I believe it was about the Ammonites and how they're supposed to be excluding foreigners from their midst. And they didn't know that. Like, a long time had gone by where they hadn't read the law. So what did they do? They kicked all the foreigners out. They heard God's word. They realized that they were not obeying it and they did their best to obey it. It might seem overly simple, but I think that that's what we're called to. When scripture says something, our job is not to philosophize about it and think, well, what are the plausibility structures that make this possible? The response is to obey, right? And when we do all that other stuff, we're usually trying to avoid the probing work of the Holy Spirit when we're convicted. So as we consider our lives, part of what scripture does is calls us to responsible speech in community with each other. 
Now, there's one verse from Mark 12 there that I printed, or actually two verses that I printed right on the insert in your bulletin, where Jesus says, he's talking about the, the greatest commandments, and he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. No commandment is greater than these. So what Jesus is saying is that everything we do and everything that we sh say should be filtered through that lens of loving God and loving others. If you'd like simple frameworks, that's quite helpful and covers a pretty wide variety of what scripture says. And Jesus didn't make this up. If you go back to Deuteronomy 6, that's exactly what God says in Deuteronomy 6. Love God, love others. Couldn't be more simple in theory. Uh, so all of our thoughts and our actions, our work, um, our dispositions, our attitudes, our words, the way that we use our resources, the way that we use our time, should all be filtered through the lens of how can I better love God and how can I better love other people? So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a bunch of verses, and it's sort of uh, like a buckshot of verses. I understand the limitations of a time like this. Uh, I am an educator by trade, and I realize that when you listen to something, you're going to remember very little of what you uh, hear. So there's this whole kind of sliding scale of you're, you remember maybe like 10% of what you read. You might remember like 12% of what you hear. But the things that you teach to other people, there's a high percentage of that. So I'm going to throw a lot of verses out there. And we're going to do it relatively quickly. What I want you to do, and it's certainly your choice. I'm not going to know. There's not going to be a final exam. Uh, but you pick those verses that really resonate with you, right? So you, you pick something you think, ooh, and you get tweaked a little bit. I believe, and I could be wrong about this, but that's kind of how the Holy Spirit works. You hear a verse and you think, oh, that is either my life is in line with that or it's not. Now, if you walk out of here, of all the verses that I've listed, if you walk away with one where you say, boy, that idea really resonated with me, and that's something that I really want to put before the Lord, and that's something that I really would like to reflect more on, that might be something that I didn't really understand what that meant, but I would like to talk more about that. That's what I really want you to do. You have to find, that's the only way the transformation is going to take place, is we find the ideas that really that God uses to, to tweak us, and we think, why is it that I reacted to that? Now, I'm a fairly naturally reflective person, so I think that when something like that tweaks me, I have to ask why. And I could defend, I could be, well, it, it's because I'm tired, and it's a holiday weekend, and I'm cranky. You have to acknowledge that that could be the case. Um, I stayed up until 2.30 in the morning uh, doing whatever, uh, and I'm not really in a place to hear this. Or it might be that this is kind of the accumulation of different things where you think, boy, I'm hearing this in all kinds of different places. I'll give you an example. When I was in college, near the end of college, I was uh, working at the Saratoga racetrack, and for probably two weeks in a row, in like nine different contexts, I kept hearing uh, the passage uh, from the book of Revelation about the church in Ephesus. The church had lost their first love. 
And I kept hearing it in all of these different scenarios, right? It wasn't just like I'm listening to the same radio sermon every day at the same time, but in all these different places, I kept hearing this passage. And so that caused me to pause and to think, why is it exactly that I keep hearing this passage? And what is it exactly that God really wants to get after me about? Because I keep hearing that. The same thing may happen to you today, that if the Spirit is at work, you want to respond to that because there will come a time when you just suppress that and you don't even hear the voice anymore. But if we open ourselves in a non-defensive way, I think God can really bring about change and transformation. So walk out of here with just one idea, something that is something you could reflect on, something that convicts you, something that's encouraging, uh, whatever that is, just uh, hold... Hold on, and we'll, we'll see it more or less in one piece at the bottom. So, our words to one another should be edifying. Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So, Scripture here in Ephesians calls us to speak truthfully to our neighbor. Now, this, to me, takes a wide variety of forms. As we've been mentioning throughout the series— all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for encouragement, for correction. The list goes on, right? All scripture is God-breathed. So our words to one another are to exercise this same function. Now, at a minimum, like minimum standard, Paul is saying we shouldn't come together and lie to each other. That's a minimum standard. We don't come together and, and lie to each other. But... I think that if we go beyond this overt lying to each other, uh, it extends to even more subtle things. So if we consider, how do I speak to other people? How can I obey what this verse says? I need to ask myself the question, was what I just said truthful? Not in the sense that it's factually accurate, right? 1776 was the date. Like you, you've, that, that's true, uh, but was what I said truthful? And to be more specific, did I just represent the truth of God in what I just said? Did I encourage a person who needed to be encouraged? Or did I offer false confidence to a person who needs to be corrected? Did I speak on God's behalf? Did I speak truthfully? Or am I just affirming people's choices because I want them to think I'm a nice guy or a nice lady? Did I speak truthfully in that situation. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now, typically, unwholesome talk is taken to mean swearing. This is the not swearing verse, um, which I take, again, to be a minimum standard. Now, if you just hold on a second, I, I don't know if this will make sense or not, so I'm going to try. We have these kind of minimum standards which we take to be that, like, we're good if we don't do something. So what I find in Scripture is that God calls us to the do's and to the don'ts. He doesn't just call us to sit there and not sin. <laughs> Does that—okay, <laughs> I just—I sat on the bench, and I didn't sin. Like, okay, that's a good minimum standard, but you didn't— actually do anything. Does that make sense? I can see a couple of smirks, so you kind of know what I'm talking about. You didn't use your words in any edifying way, but you, I didn't use them in destructive ways. You see how that's not 
ideal. It's a good minimum standard, but you didn't use your words in any kind of encouraging way. So to, to use this verse, I didn't swear all day. Awesome. But may I ask, did you obey the rest of the verse? Did you say anything that built other people up? Did you say anything that was a benefit to another person? No, I just, I just didn't sin. Okay, sometimes that's the best we can do. I get that. But we want to be aware that there's, there's quite a bit more that these verses are calling us to. Now, I could go ahead and break down what unwholesome talk is for you. But I think if we just use the verse, we can define what that means. I think, and I apologize to some of you here, that is going to include what we consider profanity. I think that's a good minimum standard. But how would you define unwholesome talk the way that there's sort of a contrast set up here? So if you look, it says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And then you've got, but, which presents a contrast. What should you do? Go ahead and call it out. This is free participation. What should you do? Right. So unwholesome talk, I think, could be defined as anything that doesn't build up another person, anything that doesn't benefit them. Does that make sense? So the word, we could go ahead and break down the Greek there, and that'd be awesome. But I think if you just use the verse as it is, there's a contrast there. Paul's saying, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but what's the opposite of unwholesome talk? Things that build other people up and things that are a benefit to them. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to be captain positive, blowing sunshine wherever you go. I think that there are a lot of different ways to be a benefit to people because correction is also beneficial. When you're walking in the wrong direction and somebody corrects you, that is a gift. That is a good thing. That is a way of benefiting other people. And it also opens us up to the possibility that there's just more. You read a verse like this and you think you're okay because you, you didn't engage in any unwholesome talk. But all of a sudden, unwholesome just became a lot more broad. So it includes profanity, but it also includes anything that is not for the benefit of other people. That should be a broad category in your mind. So take unsolicited advice as an example. Take Facebook or Twitter rants as another. So before we say anything, we should ask questions about the condition of the heart. Am I saying this because I believe it will be a benefit to others, or am I saying this to hear myself talk? Am I saying this because I believe that this is what this other person needs to hear, or I'm just working out my own angst? and they're just the person that happens to be there. Unsolicited advice, uninformed Facebook rants, Monday morning quarterbacking. You're familiar with the term Monday morning quarterbacking. You didn't want to be a part of a decision that was made, but you're the first one in line to criticize it after it's made. That, that's Monday morning quarterbacking. Is that something that's meant for the benefit of other people? Or could it be considered unwholesome talk as Paul describes it here? And just imagine for a minute if every word you used and every word you heard over the next 24 hours was filtered through this verse. Would the quality of your life increase or would you feel like you were diminished? 
Which, which do you think it would be? Like, just imagine that every word you hear and every word you say are just for the benefit of other people, that you're not working out any of your own angst. It's for the building up of another person. Would that be abundant life as Jesus describes it, or would it be something else? I think you'd find that there would be an increase to the quality of your life. Another one from Ephesians. If you ever want to go study Ephesians, you might find that it's got a lot to say about words. Uh, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So here again, I think that we've got a contrast. Now, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, we know what those things are, but I'd like to open it up a little bit further by looking at the contrast. What is that contrasted with in this verse? Call it out. Thanksgiving. Gratitude. So another fine question to ask ourselves as we express our ideas in community with one another is whether or not there's an underlying gratitude to what we're saying. Now, I think venting can be appropriate. And I think that you can occasionally vent without betraying any godly standards of righteousness. But I think we need to be careful about how much we cultivate this form of life because all of a sudden it becomes a condition of the heart. We know that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if you constantly need to say those types of things, and there's not an underlying gratitude to them, you again have to ask uh, questions of the heart. And a constant need to vent your frustration, I think, falls in this category, and it shows a less than ideal condition of the heart. So our words should be used to edify other people, to build them up, to be of benefit to them. Our words should also be used for godly confrontation and for reconciliation. And we go to Proverbs 15, 23. A man finds joy in giving an apt reply, and how good is a timely word. Can you imagine that you're in a position to say exactly what another person needs to hear. And the verse couldn't be more clear. A man finds joy in giving an apt reply, and the timely word is good. Now this can take a lot of different forms, but imagine for a moment how edifying it would be to know that what you said, the words that you used, were something that helped a person to become what God wanted them to be. That's what an apt reply is. It's a fit word. It's exactly what the person needs to hear. It's not canned advice, but it's exactly what that person needs to hear. How many of us would would be edified or encouraged? Am I doing that? No. It's just... It just is what it is. Okay. Um... So this can take a lot of different forms, but I think if we come from that positive place that we show up and I think, how could my words be of benefit uh, to other people? I think that we'd find that to be an edifying prospect. To know that out of the overflow of what God is doing in your own heart, you could actually be a blessing to someone else. And the opposite can also be true. 
because Proverbs talks about that as well. So this is an apt reply. It's a fit word. Proverbs also talks about reckless words, and it says that reckless words pierce like a sword. The person who doesn't think before they speak, the person who doesn't give an apt reply, the person who gives canned advice that doesn't fit the situation, right? Those reckless words can pierce like a sword. So responsible speech means that while we're not perfect, our motivation should be to have our words fit the needs of another person. And again, imagine that the Spirit of God empowered you to do that. That every word that you used in community with other people was filtered through that lens. Like, boy, I just, I want to give an apt reply here. And you're even, you're praying as the person speaking, God, help me to say what this person needs to hear. And you're a diligent student of the scripture, so you have that sort of wisdom in your background as well, that it's both, right? God could somehow impart wisdom at that moment. I guess in the times that I've really experienced it, the apt word has been a function both of the person's knowledge and wisdom and the fact that God empowered them at that moment to say the right thing. It's both. It's not either or. Um, it frankly to me is a sort of a lazy man's way out that, well, I'm just going to pray at that moment um, for the right thing to say, and I'm not going to be prepared to, to engage in that moment. So if you went to a job interview, uh, you, I would think you'd be expected to do a little bit of background research on the company, kind of at least look at their website, know what they're about as, as a company or as a school or whatever. If you just went in, like, God's just going to reveal it all to me. Okay, well, I'm not going to deny that that could happen, but there could also be a lot of awkward silences in that interview. So my point is that it's both, that the apt reply is born of the wisdom that you have from God's word, but also his empowering you at that moment to say the right thing. Does that make sense? I got a couple head nods. They're like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. So circle Proverbs 15 and go back and look at it. So I think that scripture is clear that responsible speech to one another means that we measure every word carefully, mindful of what the needs of the other person are. So in the same way that we approach God with reverence and humility, we love God in that way, we also approach other people with that same reverence and humility. You don't want to go kicking over, uh, you know, knocking over fences and go in, go in hot when maybe that's not what the situation calls for. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But your thinking is, what can I say or how can I be present to this person in a way that brings about real healing for them? We don't come charging in with our own agenda, but we do our best by God's grace to offer a fit word. Not canned advice, but a word that really benefits the person just right where they are, right what they need to hear. And then we open ourselves up to the full range of what that can mean. Because there will be times where you will sincerely try and you will fail. And you will say the wrong thing. Now, what does God prescribe for something like that? I think a little healthy dose of humility and forgiveness and apologizing. There is no shame in going to another person and saying, I said more than I should have there, and I sense that that really wasn't what you needed to hear. And you, because God can convict in that way, I believe, that you say after the fact, like, I really didn't need to say that. And it's not enough to confess to God. I think we have that sort of uh, God 
framework seems to be a little bit opposite. We're like, I confessed it to the Lord. Well, okay, but you just destroyed another person. Ah, it's all right. <laughs> God, God will deal with them. Uh, no, actually, what Scripture says is you go to that person, and imagine how powerful that could be to go to a person and apologize and say, boy, I said more than what I should have. And you might find out that you were wrong, that like, no, no, that was exactly what I needed to hear. That helps you to calibrate so that the next time you sort of size up the situation um, maybe a little better. Uh, but it, you can't go wrong by being open and humble in that way, I believe. So scripture speaks not just to how we confront each other, not just how we talk to one another, but it actually talks about how we speak about one another. Now, when we talk about how we speak about one another, I think we need to be confronted with what scripture calls the sins of discord. And I'll just focus on gossip and slander. Gossip is simple enough. You might even say it's a little too simple. Right? It becomes on the list of these acceptable uh, sins. And to be fair, a lot of us might not even recognize when we're doing it. Right? We might need after the fact to say, boy, I, I, I said that and it came out the wrong way and I wasn't intending to, to gossip but sort of made a mistake. But slander is to malign the character of another person. And we might not experience too much of that overtly here. There's not brawls breaking out during fellowship time, at least that I'm aware of, where people are saying really inflammatory things. Um, but the warnings are important as we consider in our reading of the Bible what type of person we want to be and what type of person we don't want to be. So I'm just going to lay some verses out there. Uh, if these are confrontational, I would simply point to the fact that they're in the Bible. Uh, your argument will not be with me at that point. I am not the editor of Scripture. I did not play the role of the Holy Spirit over those, you know, centuries where the Bible was being revealed. This is what Scripture's perspective is. And in good Berean fashion, if you search the Scriptures and find that the opposite is true, certainly correct me. I don't think you're going to find too many places in the Bible where gossip and slander are spoken of positively or that that's the life that God rewards. Um, so just another area where we need to be confronted perhaps a little bit. So Proverbs 12. Wow, that's small. The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. A prudent man keeps his knowledge to himself, but the heart of fools blurts out folly. Just for morbid curiosity, and this doesn't really have anything to do with the sermon, can you see that in the back? Yeah? Okay. Okay, good. Because we sit in the back, and I'm looking from the back, and I think, I can see it, but I'm not quite sure. Uh, anyway, that's just for my own edification. Thank you very much for your honest feedback. Um, so the prudent man is one who keeps his knowledge to himself. Now, I believe that such a person can be trusted because they exercise discretion in their speech. They don't blurt things out in mixed company. There's discretion. We can assume, I believe, that a person like this doesn't offer unsolicited advice or opinions. They keep their knowledge to themselves. It doesn't mean they sit there and never say anything to anybody, but they're prudent about their words. And the opposite of that is the heart of fools blurts out folly. So I think that the Proverbs writer is setting up a contrast here. The, the prudent man is the one who keeps his knowledge to himself, 
Not that he's totally silent, but that he doesn't blurt as the, the foolish person does. So nothing is safe with that kind of person. The heart of fools blurts out folly. They'll say anything in front of anybody. You don't trust people like that. You don't feel safe with people like that. So when we speak about one another, this is an area where we need to be careful, right? If somebody entrusts sensitive information to you about themselves, about their circumstances, I think this is a good little guideline here. Prudent man keeps his knowledge to himself, uh, but the fool blurts folly. And note, too, that it says the heart of fools. So there's that idea again. Words are never just words. So who would you rather be? Would you rather be a person who uh, sits in a Bible study and is known as a person of prudence, a person who keeps their knowledge to themselves, but only exerts those things that are useful to other people, that are beneficial to other people, or the, the person who blurts out folly? What type of person would you rather work with? What type of person would you want to sit in a meeting with? The person who, it could be interesting to watch, but it's sort of like a train wreck in terms of, like, what are they going to say? We, you know, there's people like that, and it, it's equally terrifying and interesting at the same time, because you think, please don't say this, please don't say this, but, but they, they blurt out folly. So who would you rather be? Who would you rather be around? Who do you trust? I think we could all agree that we would trust the person of prudence more, and if we were to poll, I think I'd rather be the person of prudence than the fool who blurts out folly. Proverbs 17. Now, I've spoken about this one before, so you'll forgive the repetition, but I feel like I could, you know, tattoo this thing on my face, and it, uh, it just, proverb, like the whole book of Proverbs is just, just such a, a great thing. But anyway, Proverbs 17.9 says, He who covers over an offense promotes love, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Now, this is about gossip. The person who covers over an offense promotes love, but whoever repeats the matter. Now, what that means is this uncontrolled blurting takes place in a different context, Right? So we need to be very careful about what our motivation is. If somebody has wronged us or somebody has shared sensitive information, I think what this is saying, he who covers over an offense promotes love. The person who's not going to blurt that out in mixed company, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. So we need to be very careful about how we exercise that kind of gossip. And none of us are really going to call it gossip, but that's what it is. And I think you know what it is. Uh, as soon as it comes out, you just think, oh, why did I have to say that? Did, and, and then you go back to the list of previous questions. Did I say that for the benefit of other people, or did I say it to hear myself talk? God's perspective is good, godly motivation is you consider how this is going to build up another person. You only say things that need to be said. You don't have to blurt out folly. So we have to ask ourselves, are we trying to incite people? Like, why would you share that kind of information? So are you trying to incite people? Are you trying to build them up? Are you trying to provoke them? Now, this is where we need a little bit of nuance, because provoking people is a strategy I think Jesus uses. I think the prophets use it. I think Paul uses it. But you have to ask yourself, why am I trying to provoke them? Why am I trying to incite them? Am I just trying to get them fired up so I can watch them explode? Like... 
I, I don't know what your experience growing up was like, but when you have a younger brother, uh, the best thing in the world is to get him riled up and to have him explode. Uh, that plays out on a semi, semi-regular basis in my own house now. But it's funny, I, I, and I, I guess I'm just speaking the truth. When, when somebody blows their stack like that, it, come on, I can see a lot of you smiling. It's mostly guys, maybe I'll be quiet. Um, but it's funny. I'm not saying it's wise. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's godly. What I'm saying is, what is your motivation in doing those things? Because adults do the same thing, Right? Am I saying this to provoke a person for godly reasons or just because I want to set them off? And think about how much destruction you might cause in a person who's, you know, trying to suppress those things and trying to, you know, do the right thing. And then I walk over with my match to a stick of dynamite just to watch it go off, right? So in, in the second Batman movie, I believe it was, some people just want to watch the world burn, it's, that's how some people are with their words. They don't think at all about what they're saying. They just want to set people off for no good reason. I think scripture calls us to a little bit more. Uh, finally, in a passage that's familiar to many of us, this is Romans 1, 18 to 32, but I'd like to just focus on verses 28 to 32. So the Apostle Paul speaks uh, about those who have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So they've turned from the creator and they've chosen to worship created things. Now when I say that this is a passage that's familiar to many of us, this includes sexual sin, right? This is kind of a hot button issue in our day and this is the passage that a lot of people go to and for good reason, right? When you exchange the truth about God for a lie, it, it opens up a whole bunch of different sinful activities. I'm not going to focus on the sexual part because I think that that can be overdone. Um, I'm going to focus on the latter part. And these are talking about the same people. And what you do in a case like this is you look and you say, what do I see myself in that? And maybe I'm not so different from the people who are engaged in this other sinful behavior. So um, I'm just going to look at the verses. I'm going to make a few comments as we go. It says, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, all the stuff that has come before this is the description of various warped human ways of being in the world, which includes sexual sin and all that stuff. He's talking about the same group of people here. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. We go on. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. So again, it's not just their behavior. It's their motivations. It's their attitudes. It's all that stuff because they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They're gossips. That's where you throw the brakes on for a second. Because gossip, at least in my experience, is thought to be the white-collar sin, like the one we, we can't avoid it. We just, we have to. <laughs> we're, we're almost compelled by the Spirit uh, to do those things. What is Paul saying here? You know those lists of really bad sins that we keep? The really wicked people? This is the same thing. He's talking about the same group of people. They are gossips. They are slanderers. They malign the character of other people, and they talk about other people who are not there. 
Now, we want to bully some sins to the exclusion of others, and there's a whole mix of reasons why that's the case, but I'm just here to tell you, among other things, that Paul's saying they're not different. It's the same group of people. They're gossip, they're slanderers, there's sexual sin, there's the worship of all kinds of weird stuff. They're all the same group of people. It says there are God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Yeah, that just happened. Make sure you listen, kids. Um, they're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree. Now that's where we need another time out. These aren't the pagan people up in the high hills of Papua New Guinea who have never had access to anything resembling God's law. What does it say? Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul makes this an in-house conversation, right? We're not talking about people way out there. He's talking about people who know God's righteous decree. And my point in bringing this verse up is you can't exclude some sins because you're okay with them. Because it seems here that Paul's talking about both. From God's perspective, it's all about a heart that's oriented away from him. And it manifests itself in all kinds of depraved ways, including how we use our words. So again, I ask the question, which person would you rather be, right? Would you rather be the person who lives uprightly before the Lord, somebody whose heart is oriented toward him in faith and in love and oriented toward other people in service and in building them up, correcting them when they need to be corrected, encouraging them when they need to be encouraged? Which type of person would you rather be? So I'm going to close with this idea. And I didn't put on the insert, but it's what we're going to talk about next week. I want you to write down the word faithful presence. Not presence in the gift way, but if you misspell it, it's okay. Nobody's going to know but you. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. -E -E. Presence. Faithful presence. There's so much about Jesus uh, that intrigues me, but one of the great joys of my Christian experience has been to be able to read the Gospels closely and to be surprised and to be invigorated and even a little bit disturbed by the uh, actions of Jesus uh, by the interactions that he has with other people. Now, when I say disturbed, I don't think that he did the wrong thing. When I say disturbed, it's sort of like you're watching a story unfold and you recognize yourself in one of the characters in the story. And you recognize that you're not the hero that you thought you were. So when I see these interactions, I see how Jesus confronts some of these ways of being in the world. So that's what I mean when I talk about being disturbed. Uh, there are actions, there are words, there's geographic movement, there's traveling, there's conversations. There's just such a rich diversity to Jesus' experience. And one of the ideas that I keep coming back to is faithful presence. How faithfully present Jesus is in a moment. Um, and there's so much diversity to his interactions and to the people that he interacts with. That canned advice doesn't work. And you know what I mean by canned advice? Just a, like I've got my truism here and 
there's my truism and I've got this platitude here. You just gotta let go and let God. Like, okay, maybe that's fit to a situation, but that's what I mean. It's just sort of canned, not fit to a specific person. And Jesus interacts with so many different people and in so many different ways that there's just not a canned solution. He's got educated people. He's got self-righteous people. He's got uneducated, illiterate people. He's just got all that going on. So it requires that he be faithfully present. So, and I think that this resonates with our experience, right? We all work, we all interact, we're all parts of families where there's just an incredible diversity to the people that we interact with. And I think that Jesus serving as a model uh, for how we should engage that is gonna be a helpful thing to look at. Everybody just has such different ways of processing information. They have different educational backgrounds. They have different emotional, social, psychological backgrounds. Like everybody's just so different that what we're called to, I believe, and the example that Jesus gives is you're so present in that moment that you can respond and give a fit word. So next week, and just to conclude, I want to look at one of those encounters that Jesus has with Mary and with Martha. It's in John 11. And I hope that by looking to Jesus, we'd be captivated by his uh, example and might attempt, however imperfectly, because God, I don't think, is totally interested in us being like the, you know, Johnny quarterback all-star all the time. But I think that he's interested in us starting, however imperfectly, to try to emulate his example uh, to other people. So we'll look at that and see how does Jesus offer words in those situations to two very different people in the same scenario. And my hope is that by being captivated by Jesus' example, because that's how it has to happen, right? None of us is going to, we're not going to change each other. But if we're compelled or captivated by Jesus' example, then we're going to see, but that's how I want to live. That's the kind of person that I'd like to be. I would love for my interactions to look like that, except for the crucifixion. Uh, I, I'll, I'll stop short there. <laughs> I, but I, I want to be able to use my words in the ways that Jesus used them for the benefit, for the correction, for the encouragement, for the grace, for all of that stuff. And to be done with just petty jealousies and using my words in destructive ways so I can fill voids in my own life. I want to be done with that. And I think that by looking to the example of Jesus, we might see that. And we might begin to touch and to experience what Jesus meant when he said that we might have life and we might have it to the full. Let's pray.